2: You're listening to The Race car on Sin 19.7 every Sunday at 3pm. We talk politics, current affairs, pop culture with a twist.
1: The indigenous youth tend to get pigeonholed into these one or two spaces. Our
3: very lives itself, that's all we've got. And they're even taking that from us.
4: And I
5: think it's all too often that we see Aboriginal
2: people
5: incarcerated. That's the
2: recommendations. and I haven't. You're listening to the Race Card on scene 90.7. and my co-hosts my co- for this weekend's show are
3: Tonine, Amina,
2: and this. Uh, and we've been examining a topic each week. uh, a topic on race, and so far uh, we've covered what is racism, or and what is white privilege. And this week we take on cultural appropriation. And just before we play um, the uh, the the track for this week on culture on what is cultural appropriation, Tanin, uh, I, I guess what quickly just tell me what you think cultural appropriation. What kind of responses we're gonna get? Um,
3: um I think it's when people just take. What they want from a certain culture and then uh, appropriate it with theirs. So they don't actually look to the background of what it means or how significant it is. They just take what they want. What do you think,
6: Amina? Cultural appropriation is the taking and exploitation um, of marginalised people um, by their. Um, through. Okay. Cultural appropriation is the taking and exploitation of marginalized people's cultures by the dominant group. In this case, that is categorically white people in Australia. And often this is done without understanding of the significance, history, experience, and traditions. And this can be through the unauthorized use of the marginalized people's dance, dress, music, language, folklore, cuisine, traditional medicine, religious symbols, and by the dominant group doing so, this maintains and reinforces their dominance over the mar- marginalized people um, by removing their ownership and authority on their culture and effectively their right to deter- self-determination. When one culture dominates and marginalizes the other, what effectively happens is that the marginalized people become fodder for commodifying and fetishizing, which is very dangerous, and that also obviously leads to exploitation. And uh,
2: with that without that- we're going to play our, um, what is cultural preparation, what people in Melbourne CBD actually think it is. So um, remember, you're listening to The Race Card on scene 90.7, and here is what people think cultural preparation is. What does cultural preparation mean? Got no idea. What comes to mind?
3: What was the question?
0: Um, I don't actually know. <laughs> You like, the pre- term? No, it
4: pre- what comes to mind when you think
0: of it. Preparing people for understanding cultures?
3: Um, I'm not sure really, maybe just like being ready to be accepting of other cultures and yeah. Like you
4: respect people's culture? Or
3: like that? Okay. Yeah, we're going to Cultural, like bringing everybody together. What about you? Is that, like, multiculturalism? Okay. Well, that's what I think it is. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Cultural appropriation.
4: Isn't that when things from particular cultures get taken by others?
3: Or something along those lines? When you hear
0: this sound? Isn't it like when people, um, they, like, adapt into another culture? Like, they take elements from another culture and they bring into their own? Or is it... I just have no idea. (laughs) Cool. I really don't know
2: What do you think it means? What do you think it means?
0: Um treating each culture like as they should be treated, just treating everyone the same.
3: I agree. (laughs)
4: Appropriation. I don't know. I don't know what that would mean.
3: What comes to mind you think of it. Something about culture. Well, culture, but also
4: probably something that's um, that you've got some ownership
5: to it.
2: So, that's those were a few colourful responses. Um, and, Tani, and some people are going to say, hey, um, now you're taking it a bit far with this race thing, you know, uh, now you're going to say we can't wear this and you can't do this. Why are you trying to stop us from exploring and, and broadening our cultural horizons? Um, what, what would you say to that?
3: Um, I guess we get that, we obviously get that reaction a lot. And, of uh, constantly raises concerns with even Aboriginal people when they wear the headdress and um with the headdresses from Total Island or Canada with the indigenous people wear over there and it's like Anzac medals here. You know, it's they get that when they've gone through wars. Um but I guess I often refer to that when Aboriginal people wear the headdress it's or when white people wear it. It's would you be comfortable with someone taking and wearing your Anzac medals, like your grandfather's Anzac medals, like stuff like that. But I think that also the society we live in, it's like, you know, pop culture and like people like certain things are from a certain culture and think it's like contemporary, but they take it and they don't know what it even means.
2: Interesting. All right. But just, um, quicker, we're going to, we're going to go to a, music break and before we do um, remember you can get involved in the discussions and what do you think culture preparation is um, uh, send us a text on zero four two seven seven six seven six, or, or tweet us using the hashtag race card um, and we're going to be playing um, a song from Thelma Plum's new album it's called King and Tani uh, just quickly loading it up right now as we speak but just before we play it so yeah Remember, send us a text or even a tweet on what you think cultural preparation is. Um, Yeah, and hopefully Tanin is almost done with that song. But yeah, you know, this is community radio. Sometimes things don't always go to plan. I'm Luke
1: from X and you're listening to The Race card.
2: Remember, you're listening to Sin ninety point seven. We are the Race Card. Remember, you can get involved in all the discussions on what is cultural preparation by texting in 0277676 or tweet us using the hashtag Race Card. And now we're going to go into our sig- uh We're already in our segment. <laughs> the week that was, um, and that is just basically highlighting the things that happened during the week. And this week we spoke to IndigenousX, uh, um, who had a Kickstarter campaign, and uh, that was coming to end this Tuesday. Um, we spoke to its founder, Luke Alpierce, and they, uh, they made their goal. So, uh, congratulations, Luke, and, um, hopefully, uh, IndigenousX grows and grows. So, um, if you want to know what IndigenousX is, um, it's all about empowering, um, Indigenous people through social media and, and other media outlets. Um, and here's what Luke had to say this week when I when I sat down and, and, and spoke to him. So here's um, a little uh, a little bit of our interview, and we'll be back on the other side.
1: Okay. So um, a lot of people know, that Indigenous X for the last three and a half years has been um, mostly a, a rotating Twitter account where we have a different Aboriginal and/or Torres Strait Islander person each week who takes control of the account um, and has that opportunity to. You know tell their story in their own words and promote a, a whole range of issues for whatever is important to them, maybe in their work or personal life or community. Um, but we've also moved out across other platforms and began sourcing our own articles, um, you know taking on issues, hopefully trying to get some of our own awareness campaigns or lobbying campaigns. You know, there's a lot of issues affecting our mob at the moment right across the country, um, be that in media, be that in government, be that at a, a community level or a, a social level. Um, and so the fundraising effort is really to help us, you know, move forward and actually start paying some professional Indigenous peoples for their time um, and actually you know, take the time to become a sustainable independent indigenous media outlet.
2: How important is that um, autonomy in terms of your own um, platform, your own voice and having a, a media organisation um, for, run uh, run by um, indigenous people?
1: I think that independence is really the, the cornerstone of what can make indigenous media so much stronger and I think that media across the board, but I think that's especially Important for Indigenous media. Um, you know, if if that money comes from those corporates or, or governments, there's a great chance there's going to be a lot of strings attached to that. And you know, like I said, a lot of our campaigns and awareness raising has been about things that are happening at a government level um, that are you know really detrimental to our communities. Whether that ignoring reports or racist comments made by politicians, or you know the closing of communities or the defunding of essential services. Um, And so if that money comes from those areas, there's an expectation, um, you know, to fall in line with whatever the the agenda of the day may be. And so having this money come from the community um, directly to us through crowdfunding gives us that freedom. To, to know that we can take on whatever issue. And so, yeah, without that independence, for me, would completely defeat the purpose of why we created Indigenous X and, and what makes Indigenous X so special.
2: How did um, the idea to, to make Indigenous X start out? What, what did you do? Did you just have a Twitter account and you thought, I want to start tweeting and I want to start giving you a platform for um, fellow Indigenous peoples?
1: Yeah, well, that's, I mean, I, I started it just as my own personal account many years ago before it was called. Indigenous X, um and was having a bit of success there and found it a really uh, empowering space to to get those issues out there but at the same time I'm very mindful of the fact that I'm not a uh, representative of all Aboriginal people um, and there's no way that any one individual can take on that role so I really wanted to share that space um, but at the same time keep myself humble and grounded and and not fall into that trap of trying to speak for everyone. Um, So, you know, the nature of Indigenous X ensures that that can't happen because each person takes the account for one week and says whatever they want to say, you know, whether I agree with it or not. And I think that really is the strength of it, is that diversity. And, you know, when it comes to the broader Australian community, I think we hear a lot of those different views from white Australia especially, um, you know, about every different view they have, whereas Indigenous views tend to get pigeonholed into these one or two spaces. Um, so, Indigenous X is a way to help break down those barriers to move beyond that homogenous um, way of framing Indigenous people and Indigenous issues.
2: Recently, with Adam Good's situation and, and the controversy with the booing, I never um, imagine uh, international media and, and racism involving uh, Indigenous people in Australia, which is most uh, most of the time, not highlighted in international media. How how big a deal do you feel Indigenous X and and other social media or uh, social media accounts help to bring that awareness to international audiences?
1: Yeah, I think you know, and that's it's a, a sad example, but I think it's an important one as well. What's been happening recently through mainstream media within Australia. Um, it's been groups of non-Indigenous people sitting around explaining why they see it as racist or not, um, and Indigenous voices have been largely ignored, which is in and of itself um, you know, a form of the racism in Australian media that they don't think to actually ask a variety of Indigenous people. You know, you can't just get one or two Indigenous people because there have been a couple of people who've who made it on whatever TV show or you know, newspaper or whatever talking about it, but there are so many different views amongst Indigenous people about these issues and social media, you know, it gives us that chance for each person on their own account to tell their story, to write their blogs, to make a YouTube video, you know, whatever it may be. Um, whereas otherwise, you just would not hear any of them. This is Amir Rahman, and you're listening to The Race Card.
6: You're listening to sin 90.7 and we are the race card that was luke pearson from indigenous x remember we can get involved in all of, you can get involved in all of the discussions by texting in on 0427 767 767 or tweet us using the twitter hashtag race card so reclaim the bindi week is wrapping up today For those of you unfamiliar with it, Reclaim the Bindi is a social media campaign where South Asian women flood the internet with photos of themselves owning the Bindi, which has been heavily appropriated by non-South Asians and exploited by major chains and festivals alike. The Bindi holds symbolic cultural and religious value in Asia, South Asia particularly, and for South Asians around the world, it is a marker of our pride and heritage. We've got Arundhati with us today, who has been an active participant in the movement in Melbourne. Harunditya, how are you? I'm great.
0: How are you, Amina?
6: I'm well, thanks. Thanks for coming and speaking to us. No problem. So, what does the bindi signify to you?
0: Um, For me, I think you said it pretty aptly before about it being a marker of pride and heritage. Um, It reminds me of being a lot younger. So, around when my parents first migrated, I was probably more you know, familiar with um, South Asian media than I was Western media, because that's what I listen to at home. Um, and I was, yeah, I was, I would grow up and I would wear the bindi and I was really excited to wear it because it was like what all, you know, the big South Asian Bollywood stars would wear. And slowly as I grew up, it sort of stopped being that. It was sort of a marker of my difference and I, I stopped being able to be proud of my culture and those kinds of things. It obviously also has religious roots, but, um, for me, it really was just, um, something that made me feel strong and like connected to my Indianness or my South Asianness.
6: Right. And is that one of the reasons why we claim the Bindi is important?
0: Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, it, we have to look at these things obviously in the co- context of like, I guess assimilation, because as you grow up, you, you realize that you have to assimilate and all of those markers of your difference or the things that you feel like you have to be proud of or you should be proud of, like your difference or your Indianness or your South Asianness, are sort of taken away. So it's really important, I guess, to feel like you can reassert those things because, I mean, at least for me, Growing up, it became really clear that wearing the bindi or wearing anything from my culture that was different was a marker of my failure to assimilate. And obviously, that's not going to get you job opportunities. That's going to ostracize you in your community or at your schools. You're going to get bullied. So Reclaim the Bindi was something... I, I mean, I thought it was really important because it put something into, I guess, the mainstream media through social media that said, like, no, this isn't weird or strange for brown people to wear. This isn't a marker of our difference. This is a marker of who we are. I mean, we may be different, but it's not a bad thing, really.
6: Yeah. And I guess that's where the fact that people like Willow Smith, Gwen Stefani, Madonna, mm. Miley Cyrus, when they don the bindi and it's seen as cool, it's hip, it's, you know, it's a fashion trend and I can see that it's hurtful from yeah. what I can gather and, and it's hurtful for, hurtful for me too, I guess, mm. as a South Asian. Um, what do you think of that?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a pretty, that's a definitely a good example. I guess, like, we, 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 if you're reclaiming something, it means that it's been taken from you. And I guess, like, the most obvious example of that is when you see white women wearing the bindi, and they're allowed to be wearing it and be seen as, you know, avant-garde or fashionable or, like, bohemian or whatever. And, like, if I wear it, it's, it's definitely not that. It's a marker of totally the opposite, like a failure to be, you know, modern or with the norm or Western, um... It's, it's, it's kind of painful to look at. I think a lot of the time when we talk about cultural appropriation, it just sounds like a lot of, you know, stuffy South Asian women, like, sitting in a room, like, you know, getting mad. But, like, it's, it's painful. It is actually, like, it, it physically feels uncomfortable and you feel rejected from your community when you see, I guess, that someone else is allowed to have something that you can't. Um, so that's basically it. I, I think it's, I think it's very clear, I guess, when Madonna does anything, <laughs> um, that, um, that's, like, set the stage for westernness um, you know this is like celebrities saying that it's okay to take something and totally divorce it from its culture um, which is yeah it's not a nice feeling it's not a, a nice thing to be involving yourself in it's not easy to accept a culture that deems this acceptable
6: definitely Should non-South Asians wear the bindi? I mean, are there exceptions to that?
0: I think, I think every South Asian woman is gonna give you a different answer to that. Um, for me, I, I pretty much would say there's almost no exceptions. Other than, I guess, a really clear, obvious invitation saying, yeah, come to my wedding, wear a bindi, wear a sari, um, and like, you know, involve yourself in my culture. That's my personal opinion. Um, but broadly, I think a lot of people would have a lot of different ideas. I think, probably the best thing to say is to minimize your exploitation of the other culture as much as possible. So that can be socially in terms of like, if you're in a place where you know you have social capital over Brown people don't wear the bindi because you're obviously going to be ex- exerting your social capital by like, just by wearing it, you're claiming it's yours and you can't say that, Oh no, this is fundamentally from Indian or South Asian culture. You, you can't, you're not able to do that. Also economically, don't buy the bindi from Topshop. <laughs> you're just going to be giving money to like huge a huge British corporation who probably like is profiting somehow from <laughs> colonization in South Asia. So if you're going to buy the bindi and if you're going to wear it in a a place that that it's appropriate, buy it from a South Asian person. Don't buy it from some sort of western brand.
6: All right. Um so one of the arguments against the movement is the fact that a lot of people think that it's it's just appreciating culture. People th- say, also say that, um, South Asians have lost their culture. Mm. And for that reason, it's okay for non-South Asian people to appropriate and wear the bindi. Mm. What do you say to that?
0: I think it's interesting to say South Asians have lost their culture. I mean, I think if you go to South Asia, very clear that's not the case. Everywhere you go, there is no sort of sense of like a total Western annihilation of South Asian culture. If they're referring to people in Australia, which I'm thinking is more likely, or in other Western nations, loss of culture is a a difficult term, and I I can't agree with that at all, because you don't lose your culture, it's taken from you. In the context of assimilation, like I said before, um, we're not freely giving away these things, they're being taken from us, because you can't get jobs, you can't you know, function in society normally if you're in a full sari and you're wearing a bindi, you're not allowed to get jobs, you're not allowed to... Just go through day to day life without being stared at or without being harassed. I mean, like, there's obvious examples of, like, dot heads, like, dot head, you know, bashes or whatever in Jersey, literally, like, physically abusing people who were wearing the bindi. You can't say that this was lost. We, we, we didn't, we didn't give it away. Um, we had to remove it because otherwise we were going to be destroyed, essentially. So I think the, you know, the argument of we've lost our culture, so someone else can take it is a really poor one. So, mm. I wouldn't say that stands
6: up. Right. Thank you so much for speaking to us, Arundhiti. No
0: problem.
2: <laughs> we're going to take a really quick music break, and uh, we'll be back on the other side with our feature for the week, and it's on Indigenous inc- um, Indigenous imprisonment. Mm-hmm. And right now, we're going to be playing the song we promised you before. Actually, no, we won't. It's a. It's another song. I, I'm. I'm thinking it's a better song. Um, it is. Thalma Plum's Rosie, so uh, enjoy, and we'll be on the other side. What is racism? No idea, mate. No idea? Depends
5: who you're asking.
3: My friend will tell you I'm very racist. (laughs) Are you not? What's my definition of racism? Well, doesn't it?
4: People, racist people are racist people. They don't like any other colors, nationalities, yeah. Thank you. What is racism to me? Something stupid. I don't agree with
5: it, Don't like it. Don't think it should exist. What's racism? Um, I don't know, racial
3: prejudice. What about you?
2: other not you copy I huh? uh, forget you 're listening to sin ninety point seven and we are the race card and you can get in contact with us on the show by texting in oh four two seven seven six seven seven six seven or tweeting us using the hashtag Race cards. So remember, you can get involved in our discussions. And now we look to our feature for this week, which is Indigenous imprisonment. Um, and and this past week, uh, th- uh, um, this past week there were demonstrations all around the country how to commemorate the anniversary of the death of Miss Julia Cadu, who died in police custody a year ago. Um, and here is a is a package um, we have uh, from the from the demonstrations in Melbourne earlier this week. We've been here since time began, our ancestors' footprints are buried in the sand, we are but caretakers of this ancient land. This week, Aboriginal activists gathered to pay their respects to Miss Juliet Cadu, who died in police custody almost a year to the day. Ms. Stu was jailed after acquiring fines up to $1,000 and later died in custody two days after. Her death has raised the profile of Indigenous incarceration and deaths in custody over the past year, with her uncle Sean Harris travelling around the country raising awareness of Ms. Stu's story. The demonstrations saw Indigenous leaders and activists speak out about their frustration.
3: And the sentence her family has to deal with now is, is not the $1,000 that she didn't pay because of
2: barking fines. The reality is that they they have a sentence that they can never recover from.
3: What have we got? Nothing except our life, our very lives itself, that's all we've got. And they've even taken that from us. No more. As a Colder Nation Sovereign Embassy member and a grandmother and mother, I say no more.
2: Radio presenter and activist Vivian Marlock gave an impassioned speech about the rates of Indigenous incarceration and the rate of imprisonment of non-violent crime. Non-violent crimes
3: incarcerate about 30% of Aboriginal people in this country. Okay, I don't know if you know that. That's sort of not stuff that's openly put out there.
2: Indigenous Australians make up less than 3% of the Australian population. Speaker Auntie Susan references the depleting number of Australia's First Peoples.
3: No more. Enough. We are less than 4% of the minority. Now if we was an animal, we'd be on the endangered species list. We would. We can't afford to keep dying like this when we are the minority.
2: Chandra of Singh. A legal expert revealed the issue with internal police investigation and the lack of information for families who've suffered losses to loved ones.
5: Because the
4: system of police investigating police and the coronial system um, uh, um, imposes extraordinary delays and extraordinary additional suffering of families, It, it almost becomes a, a, a secondary and compounding system of abuse for families, um, of people who die in custody. And um, right around the country, but particularly in Western Australia, families often wait two, three, four years for the, mas- the most basic access to information, access to the brief. You know, a directions hearing and a hearing. You know, and in all of that time, you know, the questions and the, and, the, and the uncertainty and the suffering just multiplies.
2: Prominent Indigenous activist Robbie Thorpe ended the speeches with a call to recognise the laws of the land.
0: The original people of this land have been here since the beginning. Does that mean
2: anything to you? We're ancient. We have a law that no one recognises.
6: Or respects. You want to recognize something? Recognize the precedent law of this land. How about that, folks? Eh? That might help. Might prevent things.
5: Is this what we
2: deserve? Is this what we deserve? And we're back. You're listening to Sin 90.7. Um, and we are the race card. Remember, you can get involved in the discussion on the show, um, uh, very simply by sending in a text, um, by sending a text in zero two seven seven six seven seven six seven, or tweeting us by using the hashtag race card. So don't be shy. Get involved. We want to know what you're thinking is, what is cultural appropriation? Um, what are your views on uh, what we've been talking about today. Sh- share, get involved in the show. This is your show too. Um, and, and it, it's been a very emotional period for the family of, uh, Julia Cadu. Before, before we play our interview with the late Miss Jew's, un- uh, the, uh, the late Miss Jew's uncle, Sean Harris, Tanin, and i I'd, I'd like to gather your thoughts on why there's a lack of media coverage of the prevalence of black deaths in police, cu- uh, in police custody.
3: Um, black deaths in custody has been prevalent for a long time. If you look at Australia's history, um, since we were invaded and colonised, they've killed like 80% of Aboriginal people because they think they have hierarchy on us, um, because they're white and we're black. Um, it stems from such a gruesome, um, past and foundation. So, um... Now they're incriminating Aboriginal people under their law and use this as an opportunity to neglect us and use their power on us and even by killing us um Our culture is continuously criminalized, and Australia doesn't value Aboriginal culture and Aboriginal people because we're constantly demonized in the eyes of Australian public um so I guess that's why um you know it's not ever made it to the media because um Australian public doesn't care about criminals and they don't care about Aboriginal people, so why would they care about um, Aboriginal deaths in custody?
2: Definitely. And now we're going to go and, and play our interview with Sean Harris, the uncle of Miss uh, Miss Julia Cadu, who's, who's been travelling all around the country uh this year um and, and last year since the death of his niece to to try to get her justice and has uh been able to get an inquest started which will start in a few months on her death and and he's trying to find accountability for the uh, for the institutions that led um for her death in police custody so here's the interview uh from earlier this week
5: um, we're still just all in shock and it's just, it's- She's still not here. Um, the fact that it's been one year on, um, t- time will not change that feeling of disbelief and emptiness, and the feeling that we've, one year on, we've been having to try and pick up pieces from shattered hearts, which it
2: shouldn't have to be having to do at all. Um, at, at this point at this point what is um, what is this what is the end goal um, for you and, and and the movement that you're you're helping to start
5: we're after two things Justice for Jaleka and for family, closure for the family. And it's not just closure for the family, it's closure for Jaleka so she can rest in peace. And um, to make sure that Jaleka has not died in vain, you know, she's now started a lot of uh, movement of some sorts. She's woken so many eyes up and <clears throat> her case alone has shut so many people hearts um more deeply I'd say in the uh for the fact being that she's a young twenty two year old Aboriginal lady who only had one thousand dollars worth of unpaid fines, and due to the severe severe deprivation of liberty that was inflicted on her um racially motivated or not, be it through the judiciary or the health department or systems they have to be held accountable. And um we want convictions. Um, because that's true accountability and there'll be no if there's no peace there's never going to be uh, justice if there's no peace uh, justice there will be not going to be any peace you know yeah it's just that they're getting away with it blatantly and the fact that there's been no convictions Australia wide throughout this land since invasion day and and before from all the murders et and evidence, and all that sort of issues as well. That's still, um, they're still death in and custody, and um, it's just the cleansing. And there's no, there's blatantly no accountability, which we want. Is a conviction at least one conviction? There were so many people that was held uh, involved in the process of in the lead-up to Jamaica, during and after, and so many errors on so many levels. Now, the government knows this and their system's this. Every system that was involved in so it's, it's, they could they these things and the inquest that's going to be starting on the 23rd of November um, is going to be very deep and there will be a lot coming out off of that as a result. But at the same time, there will be a lot that still will be covered up and denied. And um, that's had a year to, to collude and lie and cover up and destroy evidence as it is we still haven't got <coughs> a copy of the latest medical records from the health campus in Headland. um there's we starting in two months or so and we haven't even got it's over a year and we haven't even got uh, medical records yeah one of the main things that Oh, I'm pushing for a person and plus the campaign as well in fact gussing notification service um, that needs to be implemented Australia-wide implemented and expanded or expanded and implemented um, not slashed or funds cut or flashed altogether that's proven lifesaver as in New South Wales for the last 15 or 16 years or so there's not been one death in country since they've implemented that so that's that speaks for itself and um, the fact that they have not implemented that recommendation alone Australia-wide, which is a proven loss I um just leaves you scratching your head and pondering it's just, it's just so shocking and ridiculous just that alone um, if Chief Judicial Minister or something or other like that the day we had Jalika's first anniversary, they had a meeting in Perth, some government officials and etc. About Indigenous incarceration, and apparently, been informed that that judicial minister was well, even quoted as saying that the incarceration Indigenous incarceration rates in Australia, that they, uh, is crazy. Um, so it's good to know that there are still other people out there in those sort of positions that are still, uh, just, you know, on our side, so to speak. But um, we need things to be put into motion and action is done because in the meantime, while they're meeting here and there <coughs> to decide what they can do, um, they should have they've had twenty of ideas to so implement their recommendations, and they haven't
2: that was sean harris talking to me earlier this week about um the processes um in which he's taken to find justice for his uh, niece Julieka um Juliaka who was killed in police custody um almost a year to the day um and and um, we touched on the issue with black deaths in custody now we're mov- now we're going to be looking at incarceration rights and amina before we go to our next interview just how high are incarceration rates for Indigenous Indigenous peoples?
6: Well, across Australia, incarceration rates of Indigenous people are comparatively high compared to um, the non-Indigenous population. And according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, 27% of all prisoners in Australia, in Australian prisons, are Indigenous people. That's a gross over-representation of Indigenous people in, in the prisons, considering that indigenous people make up two to three percent of the population, they don't even make three percent, but they are almost thirty percent of the prison population. And I think that speaks something. It, it translates. It is a direct translation of the system um, that that has been predicated on the um, the oppression of indigenous people. And one that particularly stands out is the Northern Territory. Eighty-six percent of their prison population are indigenous um and obviously the rates differ between state to state but these rates they're not just for the adult population this extends to indigenous children in detention we've got every at any given night 430 indigenous children in detention and that that is, that comes up to an annual cost of less than a less than half a million just a little bit less than that every year and that's something that you could instead educate a young Indigenous person for towards a medical degree.
2: Definitely, definitely. And we're going to go to the interview with our legal professional, um, uh, Periki, uh, Perikiri Periki, Perkeria, R- uh, Ruska. I apologize for my poor, poor pronunciation. Um, he talks about the rise of in- Indigenous incarceration and talks about... Transgenerational trauma and and, and so much more. So stay tuned for that. It will be coming in just a second. And also don't forget to get involved in all the discussions by texting in on 427 or tweeting us using the hashtag racecard. So remember, we're here, we're here for you to be involved in our show. So don't be shy. So I've been
4: a criminal lawyer in Victoria for quite some time working only with um, Aboriginal clients and I think it's all too often that we see Aboriginal people incarcerated and what I quickly noticed with our community is that it's this systematic cycle that they're they're caught up in and it's not what what we're seeing is you know mothers and fathers going through the so-called criminal justice system and then it's their sons and their daughters and it's just Ongoing, and ultimately what will happen is they um, will serve a time or get incarcerated for a certain amount of time and then they're out and then ultimately they go back in again. And that is their life from the day they are born until the day they die. It's just a a full-on cycle, sadly, that our people are caught up in.
2: Why do you think that is, having worked in um, criminal law for, for a while now?
4: I think a lot of it, well, all of it is linked to... And um, what we call transgenerational trauma or intergenerational trauma. And that ultimately is trauma handed down, um, genetically from, um, parent to child. And I think when you look at the history of Aboriginal people in this country for the last 227 years and ultimately what's happened to us and ultimately we don't know how to, how to fix it. It's not, it's not a quick fix and it's not something you just take a tablet for you know, any kind of medicine and you're better. And so what the effects of that transgenerational um, trauma are seen through things like drug and um, alcohol addictions, so trying to suppress feelings through the use um, of of these drugs or, you know, with a lot of people, it's um, it's mental health issues. And what's happening is to feed these addictions, they, they go out and, and they offend. So it's not... Um, a lot of violent offending with our people, or you know, it's it's shoplifting, it's stealing food to feed their families. And because you know, this supermarket has been built on the traditional lands, but ultimately, you know, only a hundred years ago for some people, they would have been able to go there and hunt freely.
3: I also have a question like, recently I went to some prisons for work, and a lot of Aboriginal people were actually in there, um, you know, because they've done a crime like stealing food but then they're unable to get out because they don't have homes to go to um what is your response and what do you think um people can do or what do you think the justice system can do um because people are staying locked up for longer because they don't are homeless they don't have homes to go to
4: yeah it's, it's quite um shocking with the the criminal system down in victoria um and across the across the country for that matter. What's happening is when people are applying for bail, they're being refused because they have nowhere to live, nowhere to stay. And I believe that's due to um, the lack of adequate housing um, available to um, Aboriginal people. And um, and then it also creates issues with parole. So ultimately if you do a release and potentially on parole, and you've got nowhere to go. It gets quite difficult with the parole board being able to track you. So ultimately, it makes um, your application for parole um, a lot more difficult. What is
2: uh, what is lacking at an institutional level uh, to to uh, I guess solve these problems that are facing Indigenous peoples fr- from all around Australia?
4: I think what we've seen work have been a very small number of programs, and they are those programs that are um, run by Aboriginal people themselves to create healing for our peoples, not them being dictated by um, a certain amount of funding and the way in which they've got to spend it, and they're doing these programs based on um, what we would do traditionally in terms um, of our healing, and we do that through... Yarning circles and men's camps and women's camps and really going back to those protocols of what it is that makes us Aboriginal and what we know that's, you know, it's in, it's in our blood. It's not, um, these programs that have been introduced that have got nothing to do with Aboriginal culture, let alone being run for Aboriginal people. So what we need is more of these programs that are self-determining for our people run By our own people, not dictated by any
2: kind of government funding. That's our show for this week. Hope you've enjoyed it, Um, and and don't forget to podcast it. We're on Mixcloud. I'll send out a link on Twitter. So hopefully you're following uh, me on Twitter at ahmedyusuf10, as well as
3: Taneen at Taneen T A R N
2: D E N. Taneen is not on Twitter yet, but I feel we could probably. I'm persuaded to get on Twitter in the next couple of weeks, maybe for the show, for the sake of the show, for the sake of race card.
6: Sure, I think hashtag, I can do that. Hashtag um, race, race card. Amina right. I mean, should get Twitter.
2: <laughs> I mean, it should get Twitter, and 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 that's me saying goodbye.
6: See ya next week. Hey, thank you for tuning in. Yep.
2: And we'll be back next week, beer and better.